And now, on Nova Radio Extra as well as podcast, it's time for Plug In and Play with Wayne Madden. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Wayne Madden, and if you're listening to this, you're listening to the very first episode of an exciting new show called Plug In and Play here on Nova Extra. Um, It's kind of a a different concept to what you may have heard before. It's going to be all about video gaming. We are going to talk about video games and the love and shared passion that I know you guys out there have about them that I certainly have. Now, obviously, I am going to try where possible, as this is a new show, to secure other guests to come on and talk with me. I have an extensive background in broadcasting over the last 20 years. For those of you who don't know me, I have been involved with Nova Radio and other stations across the world, and I have presented shows on a variety of topics, from wrestling to heavy metal music to just general talk shows. There is nothing I love more than possibly hearing the sound of my own voice, which is maybe a terrible way to start off a radio show. However, because this is a brand new project, what I want to talk to you about tonight is an absolutely phenomenal piece of gaming, and that is Final Fantasy VII. And this show is going to be dedicated to me talking about that game, specifically about the early parts of this game. Now, to give you a bit of a background, I'm going to talk a little bit about my love affair with Final Fantasy, but I'm going to kind of do this in the style of a review as well, because at the time of recording this show, I have been playing Final Fantasy VII for just under four hours. That is the remake of the game that was released in 2020 for the PS4. To prepare me for that remake, I also played the original PS1 version on my PlayStation Classic to give me a little bit of a feeling for the original right before I played the remake. And the reason I did this was because I wanted to revisit some of the classic scenarios, remind myself of the characters, and then immediately jump into the remake and engage with that. Suffice to say, Final Fantasy VII is arguably my favourite game of all time. And here I am dedicating a massive portion of a radio show to it. And i got to be honest, if I'm doing that, it kind of gives you the impression there must be something pretty spectacular about this game. So let's start with a bit of history. For those of you who don't know out there, Final Fantasy VII was released by Square, a Japanese company, in 1997 for the PlayStation 1 originally. Now, Square had a long history of making really good games. And Square Enix, to give the company its full and proper title, Square Enix had a history of making the Final Fantasy series all the way back to the Famicom in Japan and the original Nintendo Entertainment System, of course. But other than arguably Final Fantasy III, the Final Fantasy series had never come to the West properly, and when it had, it had been perhaps distorted. 
Now, Final Fantasy VII isn't like a typical seventh installment of a long-running franchise. Each of the games are standalone, in the sense that you can pick up and play them without needing to know anything about any of the other installments. Arguably as well, Final Fantasy VII has become probably the most popular version of the game. And the media that spawned across in the last 23 years since its original release has led to this situation now, where of course the remake exists on PS4. But we'll get to that in just a second. So the point is that when the game was released in 1997 for the PlayStation, the original PlayStation, it was a Japanese RPG. Now Japanese RPGs generally outside of Japan were not received all too well. They were seen as very complex, story-laden, driven games. It was very difficult for Western players who, again, were perhaps not as experienced or skilled with console gaming as their Asian brethren. And so, in that sense, there was a little bit of catching up to do. So Final Fantasy VII, one of the things that did really well was that it took Japanese RPGs and made them more accessible for the West. In retaliation, the Japanese market initially clashed with Final Fantasy VII. Certainly long-running fans of the series felt that it was a significant departure from what they'd come to expect. But of course, Square Enix's plan was simple. They knew that in order to capture more fans on a larger scale, they would have to create a game which effectively captured a lot more players and a lot more of an audience than just the staple Final Fantasy core fans who had supported to Medium to this point. Now, if you were to ask me honestly, I can't remember the first time that I ever laid eyes on Final Fantasy VII. What I can tell you is that I do remember during the summer of 1997, when we had finished school for the summer, um, on the last day, I took a trip to Electronics Boutique in Dawson Street in Dublin, and I purchased a copy of this game knowing full well what it was. I believe that a friend of my brother's had a copy of the game, and I definitely seen my brother and his friend play this game around the time of release. And it had caught my attention for sure. So I was aware of the longevity of the title, the fact that over three discs, it was a really heavy game for the PS1 and that it involved a multi-layered storyline with several different characters. And I remember commenting to my friend at the time that it was arguably going to take me until the summer holidays had ended three months later in order to actually finish the game. Now, arguably knowing what the game was and where it came from was a big reason for why I purchased this title. But at the same time, I was also taken back largely by the fact that it was so complex that there would come several points in the game where I wouldn't be able to progress any further. 
and indeed there were several boss battles which I never moved past. And in my original playthrough of the game, I would say at most I clocked maybe 10 or 12 hours and actually never moved past the first disc. At some point I sold my copy of Final Fantasy VII and even though it remained in my collection a little while after, it was never really played much past its original release. But as the years went on, Final Fantasy VII continued to play a role within my gaming experience. Even when I moved to other consoles like the PlayStation 2 or the Nintendo 64 or indeed the Xbox 360, there was always a part of me that remembered with fondness that original purchase of Final Fantasy VII from Electronics Boutique in Dawson Street. And equally so, despite the fact that I never finished the game or expanded much on the storyline, I continued to read up on the characters. I bought the expanded media that was released. In the early days of the internet, I read quite a lot of information online that was published about the characters coming out from Japan. And indeed, it was the soundtrack of the game which probably caught my attention the most. Now, for those who don't know, the soundtrack of Final Fantasy VII is extraordinarily powerful. And indeed, it's the first time I can say categorically that I definitely took notice of a soundtrack in a video game. Of course, the original PlayStation had a great sound chip, and that was a huge reason for Squaresoft to choose to, or Square Enix rather, who later became Squaresoft, to take Final Fantasy VII to PlayStation in favour of their longtime collaborator Nintendo. Um, of course, Square wanted the game on discs as opposed to cartridges, but at the same time, they also wanted a fantastic sound, and part of that reason was because with no audible dialogue in the game whatsoever, and everything being text scrolling, which was another reason why Western gamers may not have been as patient as they could have been with the game. This led to the score, the orchestral score, being absolutely phenomenally important. So, to set the scene, Final Fantasy VII is about Cloud Strife. Now, Cloud Strife is a mercenary for hire, and when we join him, he is a disillusioned ex-soldier who used to work for the Shinra Electric Company, but has now decided to become a sword for hire in order to join uh, a number of groups, including Avalanche, an eco-terrorist group who want to destroy Mako reactors. Mako is another word effectively for electricity, and Mako is being harvested from the planet's life stream. And so the big theory and the big story and the subcurrents in Final Fantasy VII definitely deal with eco-terrorism and it's quite impressive that not only did Final Fantasy VII change what Japanese role-playing games could be, at the same time it told a mature story 
through the mechanics we'd come to love in previous games in that genre, but with a cinematic flair that could only be accomplished on the newest hardware. And I mean, it's not an understatement to say that it was a literal game changer. I mean, here I am saying to you 23 years later, making a radio show about it, that it was my favorite game of all time, that I'm still playing the original on the PlayStation Classic, as well as the remake on the PlayStation 4. And I didn't even finish the original game. In fact, I've never finished the original game. And it wasn't until much, much later that I got further than I'd ever gotten before. And that was partially only with the help of mods on the Xbox One version of the game. But again, that might be something for a different show. The point is that Final Fantasy VII left an impact. And as I say, the score was a huge part of that. Its songs were effectively characters. Tifa's team, the prelude, Barrett's team, even the waltz of the Shikobo introduced in many ways situations and emotions into the game. And without that music, and sometimes I imagine what it would be like to play that game without music, it literally would not have had the emotional impact that it did. And certainly music, something that is extremely important on radio normally for one, is very, very pivotal to the success of Final Fantasy VII, as far as I'm concerned. Now, scattered throughout this show, all going well, you will hear select clips from the soundtrack to Final Fantasy VII. And they are all composed for either the original game, released on the PlayStation in 1997, or indeed the PS4 version in 2020. So, earlier this week, I began playing the original PlayStation version from 1997. And I played probably about four or five hours of a game which I'd played 20, 30 times before. Indeed, I'd probably played the same four or five hours of that game over and over. And relatively speaking, it was from the start of the game roughly until Cloud and the party wake up in their cells at Shinra HQ and realize that the president has died. And so for fans of the game who are familiar with the story at that point, they'll know that that's really a drop in the ocean where the whole story is contained. However, it is really not much further after that that the remake, the PlayStation 4 version of the game, finishes. And the reason for this is because the game is so expansive that Square Enix, who of course are now Squaresoft, have announced plans to split the game tentatively over five installments. Now, gotta be honest with you, I have a lot to say about this. And again, not something which will possibly be featured on this show. But suffice to say, in my initial first four hours of the remake of the PlayStation 4 version, of Final Fantasy VII, I would estimate that I have only played timeline-wise 
about 25 minutes of the original. And how could this be so? Well, if you like, Final Fantasy VII Remade for PS4 is two things. In fact, it's three actually. First of all, it's a remake. It's a remake and a reimagining from the ground up. It takes what we know and love of the game and it gives it the chance to breathe on the latest hardware. However, equally so, it also reimagines a lot of that world. Certainly, the introduction to Final Fantasy VII that took around four or five hours to beat, after which point you were unleashed on the rest of the world, is here being expanded to the lend of a fully-fledged, standalone, modern Final Fantasy. And while it's difficult to forget everything we've already seen, in many respects you have to, as you will play this game with your memory slowly being questioned, because it's not quite how it happened. In that sense, for the second thing, this game is a very much a director's cut. There's extended scenes, there's added scenes. And I wanna give you one brief example at this point. Now, of course, for any spoilers before, I've tried to focus heavily on the original game. But of course, for those who haven't played the PS4 version, there will be spoilers about that game directly in its storyline coming up now. So if I'm okay to continue, think of the Sector 7 slums. In the original game, at a certain point, the pillar of the Sector 7 slums is destroyed by the Shinra Corporation in an attempt to kill Avalanche and destroy the group's base. Now, equally so, you see the destruction of Sector 7 and the death of some of the people that you've worked with, namely Biggs, Wedge and Jesse. These are three characters you've interacted with since the start of the game. You've not had much dialogue with them, but you've gone back and forth and you feel the loss because you've lost three of your party. Certainly when I played the original PS1 game, I had an affinity for Biggs and Wedge and did kind of feel saddened when they were dead. And moving on from that point, it was a shame for them not to be coming back. But the PS4 version of the game takes that a thousand steps beyond. Because what happens here is that you go into the Sector 7 slums after the initial mission, the opening mission of the game, and you find yourself helping the locals. You interact with a sprawling metropolis of people. You talk to them, you fight enemies, you hear about their day, you meet people, you interact with their troubles, you listen to their stories, you try and help their worries as you earn more gil, which is the currency in the game, to buy better weaponry. And so ultimately, as the game progresses, even within its first two or three hours, you are immediately thrown into a situation where you are actually growing very attached to the people 
who you know at a certain point in the game will most likely all be killed when the pillar above them falls. And indeed the scope of the PlayStation 4 means that you look above to the sky and you notice that sprawling metropolis and you notice that absolutely huge section of Midgar which will indeed fall right down on top of the people. And so equally so, you are looking at that thinking, this is real, this is going to happen. And you're drawn in to create a far more bigger emotional connection than you would ever given to gameplay, which if I'm being honest, is nearly all skippable in the original game and takes place over a handful of pages or a handful of screens of dialogue. And it's not until you visit maybe the wall market with Ares that you actually have any kind of extended interaction with sellers or merchants within the game. But indeed in this game, immediately within an hour or two, you are being thrown into this situation. And so when we return to Biggs, Wedge and Jesse, equally so, they are bigger characters than they've ever been before. Indeed, in an early part of the PS4 game, you will end up visiting Jesse's parents at their home. You will learn more about their background than was ever learned in the original game. And you will go on a sort of a submission which skews events of the original game but leads you to still end up taking part in missions that were part of the game's original storyline. And that in itself is just absolutely phenomenal because the depth of some of these characters has created that sort of director's cut where suddenly you have far more of an emotional bond. Likewise, one of the characters, Wedge, is familiar with another cell of Avalanche. Now, as far as you're concerned in the original game, Avalanche are a fringe group. They're a group of maybe four or five arguably terrorists who are plotting to destroy Shinra reactors. And yet in this game, they are a cell of a larger network. And you actually get the opportunity to see the other cells of Avalanche and realize it's a lot bigger than just this small fringe group in Tifa's bar in the Sector 7 slums. Equally so, although some dialogue hints at it in the original game, you get the opportunity to learn that Tifa herself is actually very much opposed to the more extreme methods of bombing that Avalanche employ. And in reality, what she wants is for you to do something less violent and is outvoted by the rest of the group when it comes to their second mission at the Sector 5 reactor. But the other thing as well that I want to talk about in this game, which I did find incredible again through my initial playthrough of the first couple of hours. And as I progress through the game, I'll do another one of these recordings and I'll talk a bit more. 
is the character of Barrett. Now in the original game, Barrett is seen very much as a large, overbearing, stereotypical black African-American male. He's noticeable though, because of course, as well as being one of the main protagonists, he also has a gun for an arm. And his backstory is discussed a little bit later on when you eventually visit his hometown near the Gold Saucer called North Corel. But that's the original game. In this game, Barrett arguably for the early sections of the game serves as very much the same character, but a distrusting face in the background who doesn't really focus much on Cloud at all. And so you end up playing this particularly weird situation in which you're interacting more with Tifa, with Jesse, with Biggs, with Wedge, with the people of the Sector 7 slums, with new supporting characters that have been introduced in that role. And you're not really speaking to Barrett at all. He doesn't really come into it. Now in the original game, Barrett makes this huge impression and no doubt he will go on to make the same impression in this game. But it's the huge impression he made for possibly the wrong reasons, which drew criticism when the remake was announced as to whether Barrett would still be the same stereotypically loud, crass, black African-American character that he'd been. And indeed, um, so far, that has not happened at all. If anything, Barrett's character is the most reserved and also the least one of any depth whatsoever that I've encountered so far in the game. Now, whether that's purposefully done to wait for the moment when after the Sector 7 slums collapses, there's an opportunity for Barrett to open up more, to talk a little more, to have a moment with Cloud, that's fair enough. But in this case, um, certainly you can see that Barrett is very much quiet, reserved, forceful when speaking, but not in any way coming across as anything more than Yes, the leader of Avalanche, but maybe not even holding the group together as well and as sternly as you imagined in the original game. Equally so, in an early part of the original game, when you get back from that opening mission, uh, when you destroy the reactor, you come back to the seventh heaven, which is Tifa's bar. And there's a pinball machine which allows you to go down into Avalanche's base. Now, as of the game I've played in the first four hours, there is no way to go to that base as Cloud. Indeed, there is a landlady with accommodation near where Tifa lives to the bar and you get a room there and that's where you stay. Equally, Biggs, Wedge and Jesse all have their own rooms and places in the slums and you see where they live, adding more depth to the character and what they do and what their backstory is. But in the same way, it's also quite interesting to note through all this that Cloud, you, the player, 
don't go into the avalanche base you're not being confirmed as a member honorary or otherwise you are very much as game of thrones would say a sellsword that is the fact of it even when you see wedge or jesse or tifa or barrett emerging from the basement you are in no way invited to follow them and at no point does anyone ask you to go into that base because ultimately you may never even do so if the timeline of the game that i'm playing keeps up with the timeline of the original once i depart from my mission to the sector five slums um, or indeed the reactor i may never come back to seventh heaven i may never get that far back and so equally it's interesting that that leaves you a level of detachment from barris there's a level of hostility there where they simply don't trust you enough to let you in and as far as biggs wedge and jesse are concerned that extra mission serves as an opportunity for you to meet with them to learn about their characters but also for them to learn a little bit more about you and actually trust cloud at the same time because barrett is not involved in that mission first of all the opportunity gets to shine on the three otherwise disposable characters from the original game but also at the same time barrett's lack of involvement means that you're left not really even thinking about him as a character until he then is seen again the following morning and if anything it's his lack of inclusion in the game that makes him all that more mysterious you don't go to the base you don't really have any conversations with him the most extended dialogue he gives you outside of a mission is when he attacks you for apparently scaring his daughter Marlene. And so equally, Barris is very much, um, well, he's a family man. He protects his daughter, but that's all you know about him. And so there is that hostility and there's no real reason to pay him any attention and perhaps that was done to play down the aspects of his character in the original game or not but that will have to be the conversation for another day as i've been playing this game i've been noticing some actually phenomenal bits and pieces come to light i have been seeing some incredible uh, graphics and some incredible little easter eggs and mentions here and there and i've really enjoyed it and i look forward to playing some more but what i want to say as well is a big thing for the game is once again the orchestral score as i've mentioned earlier the score was a huge pivotal moment for me and my introduction to final fantasy 7 and so equally the score is absolutely important it's something that makes me feel alive now the score for the new game has been completely reimagined and equally though they are focusing on the early portions of the game which feature those pieces of music as well as your standard um 
soundtrack if you like and for those who are unaware the deluxe version of the game actually comes with a little mini cd of a soundtrack of tracks that are used as well as those songs you also get the opportunity to hear little remixes such as in the slums when you go to the item store and you get the remix of the prelude theme and some of these sound to be honest a little bit catchier and a little bit better than the main orchestral score but that's kind of the point because the idea is that like with songs that you're already familiar with the characters are taking those songs and incorporating them into their situation and as a player you feel more alive and welcoming to come into this world because of the score and so even though there is now full voice dialogue and acting and that ability it still is extremely important to have that score to invoke the emotional response that you got from the original game you're no longer scrolling through endless amounts of text you can now easily interact with people better than you've done before and certainly you will because there's a lot more to interact with and a lot more to hear but at the same time there is an absolutely phenomenal wealth of characters and enemies and environments and gadgets to take from this game and so in a sense the orchestral theme helps you by making your mind up about a situation whether or not you need to uh, like a situation or be happy or feel sad or feel apprehensive or indeed get your sword out and fight because it's a battle what i want to share with you at this point from the deluxe edition there is a quote from the producer of the game who writes that when final fantasy 7 was released 23 years ago it heralded a shift in game development from 2d pixel art to 3d cg which demanded a different approach tasks became more specialized and because of the need for designs that could be realized in three dimensions 2d artists were more valuable than ever however because of hardware limitations at the time it was difficult to completely recreate these designs in game and we were forced to pack highly stylized characters into 400 polygons 23 years have passed and computer graphic technology has advanced in leaps and bounds allowing for a much more realistic depiction of characters the artists of final fantasy 7 remake are revisiting these designs with a singular focus to maintain the integrity of the original works as much as possible while integrating them into the real modern world it's something i hope you look out for when comparing the designs of then and now what will toads look like this time is just one of the things i'd like you to imagine as you enjoy the game and what it has to offer and if i can say as well at the same time that equally so it's very important when you think about that idea of moving for the possibilities of revisiting these ideas 
with that focus to maintain the integrity of the original work. To my mind, Final Fantasy VII is a work of art. It's an art piece. And finally, the remake has allowed the artist the chance to display their work in the way they originally intended, not hindered by the constructs of entertainment mediums such as the digital computer graphics that were available at the time the game was released. And so equally in the same way it's also important to state that for me I've seen a lot of negative approaches about this game because specifically of the talk about it being used over five chapters and forcing people in a sense to pay for five different versions of the game to get the entire story. My belief in all honesty and whether I'm proved right or wrong will depend on my playthrough of the remainder of the experience of the game and also you guys listening to this at some point in the future to find out whether I'm right is that this game will effectively become different than its original counterpart. My belief is that over the next couple of installments, you're going to see this game drift apart to become something completely different. And really the biggest connection with the original franchise is going to be this original installment. And from here on in, even though they've already taken different steps with director's cuts and artistic liberties and other things, equally so, we are also going to see a completely different direction. And my feeling is that by the time you get the second or third installment of Final Fantasy VII, it will no longer be that remake. I imagine the second one will very much be but I imagine by the third or fourth or certainly by the fifth installment, you will be playing a different game. And really the only coincidence will be that the start of their journey was once documented as a remake of the original Final Fantasy VII. But that is my initial belief. And um, I'm glad that you were able to join with me to share some of my memories of Final Fantasy VII. As I say, Nova Extra, uh, thank you for the opportunity. And I look forward to hopefully bringing you more plug-in-and-play episodes in the near future. Um, hopefully as well, we can get some guests on to talk about their own experiences of games such as Final Fantasy VII and many others besides and we can talk about gaming to our heart's content. But in the meantime, all that leaves me to say is thank you for joining me, and um, let's have a listen to another classic selection from the Final Fantasy VII soundtrack. And uh, until next time, take care and goodbye.